Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Go to strengthguild.com, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-G-U-I-L-D.com. Scroll down to the Iron Radio Collections, and we've got new shirts and new banners for you to support the show. Everything from just a regular banner, regular shirt, to ones with sayings on them, like Lonnie's Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree shirt. And some news for you, we're going to have some contests for people who own these shirts and things. So if you support the show, we'll let you more on that later. So if you get in on these early, you can be one of the first people to win some prizes. So, thank you very much. Go check out the site, strengthguild.com. Scroll down to Iron Radio Collections and support the show. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and sports nutrition professor of about 20 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens. I'm a competitive powerlifter, Highland Games athlete. I run Strength Guild, amongst other numerous things. So, thanks for joining us. Nice. This is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I uh, created the Flex Diet Cert, faculty member at the Kerrig Institute, and a bunch of other stuff. And I'm actually at home, getting ready to do the Kerrig course on pain reset about gait uh, as soon as we're done recording here. Real good. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Folks, we have an episode on uh, mail in news. It, it's just we've got a little bit building up. There's quite a bit of uh, different things happening, both within the strength sports and in the science realm. Um, I know we have a question or two on Facebook that we can discuss, and I have one from Jim here, which I it's just timely. He said, uh, why the general fitness episode? Have we lost our focus on heavy lifting? And he, he wasn't being disrespectful, I don't, I don't think, but I wanted to at least touch on it. Uh, Jim, I think when we do something like we did last week, or if we talk about something that's not just powerlifting uh, or bodybuilding, well, or strongman, or even grip. I mean, there's quite a few things here. But to me, it, it gives us all an impression of where we fit. Like, what can we bring to these things? I think I mentioned last week about sort of being an ambassador. You know, like, what what's our interest, and can we influence those communities? Just like how we fit with them, I guess. Um, and also, we have been really bad, uh, and I'm, I'm addressing all the listeners, we have been really bad about cross-pollinating, right? So being able to connect with other podcasts and things like that um you know we just had to crawl out of the cave i think a little bit i don't know phil do you have any comments for jim about no i agree i mean it's and just it's the way of cross-pollinating and showing these people in other realms uh, strength can benefit anybody you know it really can and a lot of them are scared of it um from various sports to just various people uh there's still a stigma to it so the, the more we can get out there to gen pop the better Right on. Well, I think you were pointing out last week that, I mean, we're so niche. And, you know, that hasn't changed. I mean, no, I, liked, change. I, mean, I liked bodybuilding from the time I was 13 years old. You think I got any respect for that in high school? You know, like <laughs> yeah. like the football players or the wrestlers, they all get to wear their varsity jackets and stuff. And, and I couldn't even say, I mean, even my close friends, they'd laugh like Lonnie's so vain, you know, because I wanted to build muscles and stuff like that. Um, and I'm unapologetic. But it was, it's weird to a lot of people. It's niche. 
right? And if we don't say anything, if we're not ambassadors, then, you know, and maybe it's okay that it stays weird to most people or niche. I, I think a lot of our listeners probably actually thrive on that a little. But, uh, Mike, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I got some crap from a few of the OCR racers that I trained. <laughs> oh, did you? Show. Yeah, which, you know, totally expected. But, you know, the one guy was super cool. He's like, well, that's the reason I hired you is to do, you know, something a little bit different, you know. And a lot of people are just doing it not ultra competitively, just think that running is going to be the answer to everything. And I think yeah. that's, you know, slowly changing and it's just the evolution of every sport. You go back five years ago, baseball players didn't really lift all that much compared to what they do now. You know, so every sport's kind of gone through that, you know, evolution, NBA, everything else. Um, so, no, I think it's good to have just a little bit of, you know, variety and also showcase that, hey, you know, we know some stuff about this thing. We're probably not obviously endurance experts. We're not going to do, you know, show after show on endurance. But in something like obstacle course racing, where it's a mix uh, of both, I think it's useful. And, Last shameless plug to my client, Jessica, who finished first in her uh, age group in nice. Australia for her Spartan race just there yesterday. So, All yeah, right. congrats. Yeah. Yeah, oddly, yeah. Enough, oddly enough, I'm training one of my clients for a Spartan race now. Nice. Ever since nice. I got back. So. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> doing one at the end of October now. So. Sweet. Yeah. Honestly, I think one of the my favorite aspects of it is the this, it has face validity, is the concept that everything you do is so submaximal when you're strong as hell, yeah. right? Yeah. And I, that's just a big deal. And, I mean, you don't have to be an exercise physiologist to understand that notion, that when you run a race, if everything's at, you know, 40% of your maximal ability instead of 69%, then it, the whole race is easier, and, and you really need that. I think Phil was saying last week, you need that reserve because you're when you're wet and tired and pissed off at the end of the race, you need some kind of buffer, right? So, yeah. Okay. Um, any questions, Phil? Before we get into the news, let's just try to be um, segmented Listener here questions. with questions. Uh, yeah, there's one about pre-workouts and caffeine. Let me scroll up here just a little bit so I don't mess it up. McKay, oh, I'm going to kill your name. McKay Chidester. Um, what are your guys' thoughts on the need to cycle off pre-workout or not? Not only avoid building up a tolerance, but also avoiding dependence from a psychological standpoint. Any articles or studies would be especially appreciated. Thanks in advance. What's your thought? I mean, from a practical, Mine? yeah. Oh, from a practical standpoint, I try to, I try to limit it. Basically, I have a pre-workout or lots of caffeine one day a week, um, and that's for my heavy squat and deadlift day when I know I'm going to need a little extra push. And I find that if I limit it to that, uh, I actually get more out of it. Whereas if I was slamming cans every day or ever cans of monster every day or every workout, um, I don't get that pick me up as much as I did. So mm-hmm. yeah. I've, I've limited my caffeine recently more in the last two years, probably more than I ever have. Yep. So, and it seems to be helping. So <laughs> I, I sleep think- better too. Yeah, right. It's sort of that middle path. I mean, I don't think any of us are going to reject it. We talk about coffee, and and you know, I've been interested in pre workouts and coffee a lot. Um, in 2015, we actually presented data in uh, Yokohama. Uh, my, M- Mike was there. We were, yeah, <laughs> we were having fun. We had a whole episode on that. Mike was way too tall for the way Japan is built. I think. Yes. But, <laughs> <laughs> but the abstract was uh, the effects of instant coffee on bench press performance. Um, 
particularly the effects of habituation. And we concluded that uh, there was a blunting, but not an abolishment, right, of the enhancement. Now, we are looking at speed work, right? So we did 50% of one rep max uh, in Smith bench pressing. Uh, and instead of getting, we are ranging like 8 to 12% enhancement of bar speed and, you know, power, time to peak power, things like that uh, with naive people. And instead of 8 to 12, it was like 6 to 8%, but it was still statistically significant, right? It was still reliable. So coffee reliably works uh, even if you are habituated, and that shouldn't surprise anybody. I mean, it's the most drank beverage in the world, um, you know, sort of depending on the culture with tea. But it's like that because it gets your ass out of bed and shakes off the rust every time you do it, right? If you downregulated completely, it wouldn't keep waking you up. And people would have one pot of coffee, and then they'd be like, well, that doesn't work anymore. Uh, but it does work every time. It just It's blunted, not abolished. And that's what we saw in the lab. Again, directly looking at people with weight training experience and explosive lifts, uh, I'm not sure about heavy lifts. Uh, I've read papers before that you need more caffeine to cause a, a performance enhancement in a heavy lift. Uh, we gave two packs of Via Instant Coffee. Uh, that's like not quite 350 milligrams of caffeine, but that's a pretty pretty whopping dose, especially for some of the smaller people uh, in our study. Uh, even Phil felt two packets of that stuff it's strong yeah. it's not regular instant coffee we do it because it's so consistent I'm, I'm not paid by starbucks it's just that when you brew coffee in fact mike and i've talked about this over the years it's a mess plus or minus i don't know 150 oh, yeah. 200 two, 250 yeah milligrams variance forget it i can't do that in the lab and i the the via we tested with hplc and it was plus or minus three <laughs> three so uh that's why we did that so yeah, I wouldn't sweat it too much, but at the same time, I agree with Phil. I mean, if you don't want that blunting, I mean, the difference between six and eight percent, and maybe ten percent when you're when you're fresh and naive to it, um, that could you know make a difference. And it just makes yeah. sense to me that you don't want to. You shouldn't be one of these people like some of my students. They walk around with one of these court size monsters all the yeah. time. You got to think that you're, you're going to have some blunting to that. Well, and if you're a strength athlete, that extra two to four percent could be a big deal. Oh, that's huge! <laughs> <You know>? Yes, because <laughs> yeah. I mean, especially you start getting at the high level, you're fighting for that one percent difference. So if you can get a two for four, two to four percent difference, yeah, it could be a big yeah. deal. So. Yeah, and it, you're right. It, I think it depends on the goal, right? If your goal is just daily training and you really love your coffee, I mean, I drink, I drink reduced caffeine coffee actually when I'm at work, um, like just behind the podium and that kind of stuff because. It's not go time. I, I don't know. It's yeah. just it's not go time. And I, I know that I'm still getting some caffeine, um, but I don't want to ruin the effect. And we've talked about this over the years, too. I mean, there's been famous people. I think Lee Haney called it borrowed energy, meaning you have to pay it back with sleep and food eventually. I like that. Lee Haney was a wise man <laughs> uh, when he used to give a lot of talks and whatnot and competing. Um, I've always thought about it like lighter fluid, you know, a really strong dose of pre-workout, for example. Um, you squirt it on the coals, and it, there's this immediate flash of energy, and, but then it's quickly gone. Eventually, again, you need a big eight-hour sleep log on the fire or, you know, meal uh, to stoke the fire. So, anyway, yeah, habituation is always going to be a thing, but I, I, we went into that study with the hypothesis that it's not going to ruin it because – you know, 
it's popular for a reason because it keeps working at least on some level. So what we found with the physical performance, I think, at least in that case, mirrored the, the cognitive benefits, you know. Mike, how do you do it? Because I know you're interested in everything, you know, nootropic and you've done energy drink stuff yourself. I mean, you, you're writing, um, if you didn't already, I think you just finished a review on caffeine and whatnot for the ISSN. I mean, yeah. what, what do you so think? I published, yeah, so I published on a study on energy drinks and we was one of the primary authors helping with the new revised uh, ISSN guidelines on uh, caffeine. So the literature review of everything. Um yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with all that. I mean, I think it can be useful. I mean, one of the things I look for in new clients is, you know, how much caffeine do they consume? How many pre-workouts do they use? If it it's an escalating dose, like, all the time, you know, there's something else that's, like, completely off. Uh, for myself, I've tracked it in my workout log for, oh, God, probably, like, 10 years now. And I find once I start getting above you know, 300 milligrams on a daily basis, usually something else is off. Um, usually it's sleep or I'm just, you know, pushing too hard, not enough downtime, you know, things of that nature. Um, over the past, yeah, I'd say year ish, I've shifted myself and some clients who are more advanced to what I call just a priority day. So kind of what you did and kind of what Phil did, you know, what are their top lifts, you know, add more caffeine on that day. Like personally, I'll kind of throw everything in the kitchen sink at it. (laughs) So I'll do that usually on a Monday. Because Sunday will be an off day, so I have an off day beforehand. Uh, I usually go to bed earlier, get more sleep, and then I'll take more caffeine that day. You know, even stuff that, yeah, not the greatest data on, such as like Lion's Mane for BDMF and throw a Halo headset on and a bunch of other stuff and do a longer, more high-volume-based session. Mm -hmm. Usually higher carbohydrates the day before and the day of. Um, And that kind of helps with more advanced athletes, too. You know, you're kind of putting everything in one direction to see if you can push that thing forward by creating a little bit more stress on purpose, but you're not kind of spreading it out where every day is that type of, you know, high priority, like, you know, balls to the wall or high volume type thing either. That's a good way to look at it. I mean, the way you throw everything at it, that has external validity, right? I mean, Phil and his people, they're not going, they're not interested in just the biochemical benefit of one thing. They want to bench a lot. Right. Yeah. So yeah, it's all throw all things in. This actually came up with a project uh, that we're uh, working on for the spring. Uh, the re- if the research question is, does this help an athlete? Then there's going to be some scientists that say, well, you didn't control that very well. And yeah. m- my response is going to be, well, that's not the question. If the question is, the chemical composition of this special beverage will itself do X, Y, and Z. That's fine. But if the research question is, does it help an athlete in an open label, right? You know what you're taking, throw everything at it environment. Does it help there? That's a valid question. It's just not reductionist, right? It's, but it has more external validity because you're throwing everything at it. So, Yeah, it's the old internal versus external validity. And are you looking at you know, a pure outcome or are you looking at a, a mechanism? And I think... A lot of times in science, we get a little bit too hung up on mechanisms and before we're really sure that the thing even works, right? So the more practical question, I agree, is does the thing work? If it does work and we all agree that it works, then, yeah, why does it work, right? Looking at mechanisms and things of that nature is, to me, a more, I don't want to say valid, but a more real-world application of research. Yep. Yeah. 
Because, Phil, I mean, I, I guarantee when you go into the gym, you don't give much of a damn about the nuance, like which um, receptor or which hormone or something <laughs> particular. If, you, if something puts 30 pounds on your bench, you're going to be like, hell yeah, I'll give me some of that. You know? Yeah, exactly. That's all I'm worried about. I'm just worried about performance. So. And now, not to say that you're not interested, like, oh, well, I'd like to know how that works, but to Mike's point, why go start plowing around, poking, drilling down for mechanisms when when it's actually not that exciting to begin with? Yeah. So. And a lot of times there's mechanistic research on stuff that we're not even convinced may even work. You know, and I get that that's part of, you know, science and people spend their whole life just looking at a small part of the mTOR receptor. You know, but for people who are lifters who are looking for application, that may not be the best place to start. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, I think consumer angle on this is that consumers, um, oftentimes when you go read a website, the the ad copy, right, weaves a tapestry of fascination oh, yeah. based on mechanisms. <laughs> and in fact, one of our news bits today uh, that we'll get to after the break specifically uh, it, it explores individual ingredients and mechanisms, and advertisers love that, right? I'm going to focus almost entirely on some, you know, um, hormones effect, and I'm going to kind of brush over the idea of how much this supplement actually jacks that hormone, right? Half the ad is about growth hormone, let's say, and they almost try to gloss over the fact that this does very little to growth hormone. It's one possible mechanism, right? So they love to talk mechanisms and get people fascinated. But the bottom line is it's not really making you that much bigger, bro. So, yeah. yeah. And we could probably go down a laundry list maybe sometime in another episode of how many things, training methods or supplements had super cool stories that, you know, kind of logically made sense, but, when the actual research was conducted on them, were basically a flop. <laughs> right? Yeah, lots of lots of reasons. I had an old salty professor who used to say, "Just because something seems logical doesn't mean it's physiological." Yeah, right? that's like, one of my favorite phrases. <laughs> you, you actually have to go look. You know, you got to go look. Okay. Peter Lemon, right? Oh, uh, that was actually Wayne Sinning. Um, oh, Wayne Sinning. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I liked Pete Lemon. Wayne Sinning and I. Um, I have a. Uh, respect for the man. Let's just say that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, you have some old advisors who, you know, you didn't always, you weren't buddies. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. But oh, make that no was. mistake, that, <laughs> that man was, the man was after rigor, you know, and he was, yeah. So, okay. Uh, any other mail? We could just go to break early and come back and then do the news. Does that sound okay? Yeah, no, that's about it. Yep. Right on. All right, we'll come back. We've got news on, um, brain stuff nootropics uh i've got some stuff on gmo foods uh we've got some stuff on red meat uh and others so we'll just come back after the break Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, you know who this is. Uh, so I'm here to tell you about uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson's uh, new book, uh, Why You Should Eat Keto. I don't do it because, I mean, look at me. Come on, I'm fabulous and I'm fantastic. Anyway, you should text uh, Keto ebook all in one word to 44222 to receive your free copy. Do it. Do it now. 
Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single digit uh, royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, everyone, we're back. It's Phil and Mike and Lonnie, and we've got news from within the strength world, uh, science news, that sort of thing. Uh, let's start with the Mr. Olympia competition. Strength and muscle sport news. I think we were a little remiss in not diving into this a little bit more. To be honest, I don't watch every year. I mean, a lot of the the guys that I'm still interested in, most of our listeners would think are old-timers now. <laughs> so, And I mean, it's almost funny to me that somebody would consider someone like Dorian Yates, you know, or Ronnie Coleman an old-timer now. And I'm like, well, yeah. those guys, yeah. that's not golden era stuff, you guys. I mean, anyway. Uh, so this happened... I, I believe September 12th through the 15th, um, the Olympia event. I know there's over the years, there's been this almost historical tug of war as the Arnold um, fitness weekend grew and became so broad. It's obviously, it's, it's not just the bodybuilding event. I mean, <laughs> that's almost been completely, you know, overshadowed by everything else. Uh, but the Olympia has tried to, you know, keep pace, I think, and at least on some level, they, there's been changes in recent years. I heard the lineup this year in general seems smaller and of lesser quality. I just want to talk about the top three or four um, 
the one guy who stood out, and there are some good um, good YouTube videos of this stuff. I'm looking at one here from um, Tom Nader. Uh, but the, the point being is I thought that Hadi Chupan was rock uh-huh. hard. He's an Iranian guy. Massive rock hard. I mean, if you want to see someone's conditioning, often you, I look at their legs. You know, if they have a lot of separation and vein, you know, they're vascular and, and that kind of stuff. And he he had the size and the hardness. Yeah. And some people you look at, they just look they look a little softer and more watery. I'm not saying that they're not in condition. They're not exactly off-season by any means. But usually this is a pharmaceutical thing. They're just holding water that blurs the separation in their, you know, their quadriceps group and that kind of thing. Um I did notice that uh, was it uh, Dexter Jackson, who has been competing forever. I think this is like his twentieth or twenty first time yeah. at the Olympia. Yeah. Isn't he like fifty years old? I think. Yeah, I think so. Is yeah. he? Wow. I think so. So yeah. he's he's gonna he he took fourth. Um, the video that I saw him in, he looked again. He looked watery and sort of smoother through the legs, but the video was poor. And that's the other thing too. You know, if you get someone with a, a phone camera. You know, in the second row, it's you, you're going to lose a little bit of this. So yeah. the video you look at, I'm sure matters. Uh, that is funny though, because if if he is in fact 50, that almost He's reminds 50 me of this year. Yep. Wow, like um, that's so crazy. Al Beckles, do you guys remember Albert Beckles? Yeah, he was one of my heroes yeah. growing up. Al Beckles was like they called him the Methuselah of bodybuilding. He was like mm-hmm. you know 55, 60 years old, and I mean, I mean. Let's be completely honest, and listeners, I think, know this. These guys aren't natural, okay? So <laughs> so they have youthful hormone levels, and there's no way these guys would look like that, you know, through the course of natural aging. <laughs> so, but, but I don't care. I mean, frankly, personally, I don't care. Uh, I'm, I'm amazed and impressed. Um, but, Phil, you said you looked at some of this. I, I don't know if you've been keeping up over the years or, or what, but. No, not a ton. I just always try and peek in there and look at it. And I, I'm in agreement with you that Heidi Chupin was jacked. I mean, wow. I think what he had going I'm not a professional in any way to judge bodybuilders. I think the only thing that he may have had going against him is he's a little thicker in the waist and things like that. He's built more like a powerhouse than uh, than some of the others. But, yeah, man, he is, flavor. he's got some wheels on him. So that, yeah. Uh, yeah, and other than that, I was just looking at the Expo and things like that because I like comparing them to the Arnold and – because my first big expo was was the Olympia, and back then, fourteen years ago or whatever it is, it was it was a big thing, and uh, it, it seems a lot smaller. And there's just not the hype around it anymore that there used to be compared to, to the Arnold. It seems like everybody's gears up for that now. But that also because could because of the crowds I run in and the uh, the strongman and the powerlifting and the Highland Games and things like that is much much bigger at the Arnold. So yeah, yeah. Um. Well, if anybody has any comments about the Olympia, if you think we're undercovering it, I can appreciate that. We we are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Just being honest. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, there are some really good videos out there, and I think it's this isn't something best done just in a podcast. I mean, we could talk about so, certain nuances if we knew, knew them, but that would be boring compared to watching, again, I'm looking at one called 2019 Mr. Olympia Finals Analysis Top 3 Callout, and it's pretty good. So uh, go take a look if you're interested in that kind of stuff. I think if you're interested in strength, you're like, Phil, you at least want to check in and see, you know, what are the best built people in the world, 
supposedly. Yeah. You know, I know Arnold always said that was funny, but what are these enormous ripped guys? What are they looking like? I mean, if you like strength, you're going to like muscle on some level. That's what this whole podcast is built around. So, um, anyway, okay, um, that's the sports stuff. Uh, we have some science stuff. Um, Mike, you had something on uh, red meat, but this time it wasn't derogatory. Yeah, surprisingly, it actually wasn't. Uh, this is from the IFT.org. So Dr. Lonnie and I were out there in Vegas about two years ago now for yep, the yep. Institute of Food Technology meeting. And it says red meat consumption may not be linked to poor health outcomes. A panel of international scientists suggests that most people can continue to eat red meat and even processed meat as they do now without cause for concern. So that was kind of interesting. Um, this is published October 1st, 2019. And the article talks about that there's a review of 12 trials of 54,000 people. Uh, researchers did not find statistical significant or any important association between red meat consumption and the risk of heart disease, diabetes, or cancer. Interesting. Yeah. They go on to say in three systematic reviews of cohort, cohort studies uh, following millions of people, a very small reduction in risk among those who had three or fewer servings of red or processed meat a week, but the association was uncertain. So, yeah, and then talk to us a little bit more about the studies and what was actually um, going on in them. But I, don't know, I thought that was pretty interesting. Like, that's not the typical headline we see because red meat's been kind of the, I don't know, thrown under the bus a lot lately and associated with all sorts of stuff but then you actually go pull the study that it was from and you're like uh i don't know it doesn't really seem to be all that strong of evidence right yeah in fact the other week i did a solo bit when we were all running in different directions and it was very one thing was about this leaf jerky product you know which to me this is my bias right i don't want to get sued by anybody but i'm much less interested in soy <laughs> jerky than I am in beef, yeah. <laughs> beef with a B, beef jerky. But, but at the same time, th- there were other news bits about how eggs and meat can provide choline and help with neurotransmission, you know, and that could be cognitive or, or sort of muscular communication, right? Neuromuscular yeah. function. And, you know, so we keep ripping on this stuff and forgetting a little bit about the zoo chemicals and things like that. But, um, in fact, Mike, did you have something on um, growth factors and nerve conduction, or did you have that now? Yeah, there's another study from Science News talking about why strength training may come at the expense of endurance muscles. I think the headline, if you read the article, is a little bit overblown. Uh, but what's super interesting is they talked about a BDNF, which is a neurotransmitter, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And usually this is thought of in response to possibly some foods, some supplements, and especially aerobic exercise. Uh, you can look up uh, even John Radley's old book called Spark has a lot of really good information about it. But in the past, it's kind of been thought that this is, as the name suggests, just uh, something that happens in the brain. And they stated here that BDNF actually acts in the muscle so that during strength training, endurance muscle fiber number is actually possibly decreased. Hmm. Some researchers uh, from Brazil uh, looking at the different effects of myokines. So these are little hormone messengers that are actually secreted um, by muscle. So it just kind of goes on to talk that 
you know, BDNF may actually act on muscles and specific synapses. Uh, BDNF may actually help convert endurance muscle, maybe into strength muscle. And also looking at it in relation to muscle training with uh, age-related muscle atrophy or sarcopenia. Uh, so what I thought was super interesting is that a lot of times these, you know, myokines now, we wouldn't think of BDNF as a myokine, but it appears that it might be. And so systemically, maybe doing different effects on the muscle, maybe different organ systems compared to uh, what it's doing in the brain. Um, and that's what I think makes uh, research looking at specific compounds very hard, right? So we've talked a lot about, about CBD and different, you know, cannabinoids in the past, and some of those do some stuff very similar. They have different effects in the brain as compared to in the body. Some cross the blood-brain barrier, some don't. Uh, so a lot of times just looking at the specific compound, in this case, BDNF, uh, may have different effects depending upon where it's uh, secreted and where it comes from. So we've talked in the past about how lots of cardio, like cross-training, hampers strength gains. I mean, there's some good data yeah. on this, right? It started with a lot of like general physical preparedness stuff, military data and all that kind of stuff. You know, you have somebody run constantly and they don't get as muscularly jacked. This is almost mechanistic for that kind of thing. Like it's uh, – in, in reverse, maybe, if you spend so much time on the strength, you can't expect to be an aerobic powerhouse. Is that fair? Or yeah, I would agree. I mean, the way I explain it to students is that we know that there's an interference effect, right? And that's what it's technically called. You know, at some point, you don't see jacked bodybuilders winning marathons, right? It just You don't see, you know, endurance athletes winning powerlifting events. So we know that at some level it happens. The question then is what, what level and where? Um, and there's some older classic studies looking at uh, strength training and then followed by immediate moderate intensity aerobic training for 20 to 40 minutes. And they show that if you sandwich them right after each other, one study done in females, that your vertical jump, but especially speed and power definitely go down. And how I explain it to students is that if you've got a very large anaerobic fiber, right? So anaerobic means it doesn't need to use oxygen. You don't have to worry about oxygen diffusing across the cell. It's not using oxygen, so it can get really big in size, right, the hypertrophy. And you don't have to worry about that as a concern. If you've got a smaller aerobic fiber, at some point you have to get oxygen to diffuse across that cell because it's using oxygen. It's an aerobic fiber. So you're going to be limited by how big that fiber can get because you're limited by how much oxygen can diffuse across that, which is called the Krogh cylinder model. But what's interesting over the years is now you have uh, sports like CrossFit. And I, I was talking to you guys in Rotten Tahoe that, you know, five, ten years ago, if you would have told me that the level of CrossFit athletes would have gotten to where they're at now, I would have said, you're batshit crazy. There's no yeah. way. And now we've got, you know, athletes who are basically doing, you know, hybrid type exercise. Now they're not as strong as powerlifters. They're not as fast as, you know, elite aerobic athletes. But I... They've shown that you can push that kind of intermediate hybrid spectrum up pretty damn high, uh -huh. uh, which I think is impressive and also makes all the research and everything else even more confusing, right? Because you're looking at the output of that. And so a lot of the way that they train, unless you're an elite athlete, you're just doing a lot of Metcons. But uh, if I have someone who comes to me, I'll look to see what is their aerobic base, what is their strength. You know, what is their weaker of those two? And then they'll have dedicated sessions that are only focused on that. So 
Monday maybe only strength and power. You know, Tuesday or Wednesday maybe aerobic base. So I try to split them out a little bit to get the adaptation I want. But the end result, when you compete at this kind of hybrid level, you can get to a higher level than what I thought was possible in the past. Right. Phil, where do you draw that line? Something Mike just said I found, well, it had its personal connection to me, but as far as it's at what point do these things become problematic, right? And some of your people are pretty elite. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah. where do you say, all right, stop, stop the conditioning, you know? Um, this is now interfering. Uh, do you? Yeah, just... that depends on. I mean, it, it really comes down to a client's ultimate goal. You know, that's like if somebody comes to me and says they want to be the best powerlifter ever, then we're going to have to sit down and have a realistic talk about many things. And part of that's <laughs> going to, you know, part of that's going to be you know conditioning level. It's, uh, you're going to have to let some of that go to a point. Um, it depends on your weight class and things like that. But even then, I mean, I think even powerlifting has changed and. Like yeah. I'm not a big believer in the out of shape powerlifter. I mean, I think there is some conditioning that needs to be done just to get you through a session, um, a correct session. But we're not going to be in any way. Like right now, I, I am not ready to run a Spartan race, but I, <laughs> <laughs> but I am very conditioned for a powerlifting meet. So, and that's it. Even shifts during the season. Like when I'm out of season, I, we do a lot more conditioning and yeah. stuff for my powerlifters. It's a lot more strongman stuff and things like that. Yeah. So it's thirty to sixty seconds of output, things like that. Um, numerous times so just to get ourselves ready and prepared to go through hard training sessions uh, and then I mean like like Mike said if I'm dealing with I've dealt with numerous people for CrossFit games and things like that and usually it's just figuring out what their weakness is and yeah. 90% of the time that's strength yeah. and if you take an athlete and basically we can look at baselines across any sport and figure out what are the top people doing we average that out so then generally what I do is, okay, we need to be 10% stronger than that, whatever those baselines are. Once we get there, then we can worry about the pushing the endurance up. Okay. Because it's a lot harder to – the strength just takes longer. If we get your, your strength up to par, now we can save that and start putting some miles on your motor and your ability to do endure more with your current level of strength. So, <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense yeah. to me. I love it when I get a new CrossFit athlete who is very strong but has horrible aerobic performance. Oh, it's easy. Because I know I can fix their aerobic performance if they'll just hang in with the program in probably a few months. Yes. Yeah. You know, versus, so yeah, versus someone who I had this case a couple of years ago, and I he didn't sign on because I told him, I said, hey, you're probably three to five years out of just hardcore strength training to get to the level you need to be competitive at where you want to be, like yes. in the games. Yep. Um, that, that's just the reality. Unless you yeah. make other choices that I'm not going to be involved in, yeah. it's going to take many, many years because you just don't have the strength, and that's a long process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the reason when I said a personal connection, I remember, and I've said this on the air years past, but I was very engaged in competitive martial arts. I mean, up to a regional and, you know, level, uh, black belt, you know, I was in it for a long time. Um, well, not a very long time, but, you know, talking about six years in one and two in another um, art. But the point being is uh, I had this, uh, an old uh, martial arts instructor say, Lonnie, you, enough with the weightlifting. You don't have to be Mr whatever and i remember looking at him and i said with respect sir i do yes i do 
I, I need to be a Mr. <laughs> something. Um, and I, for me, that, that tipping point was when I started getting up around like 175, 180. I started feeling kind of gassed at the ends of these long three-hour workouts. And this was not MMA. This is very traditional stuff. This was just Taekwondo is what I'm talking about now. Uh, but um, – so imagine like in competitive events, I would have to blow people away fairly early on because if they drug me out yeah. for too long, I'm like, I'm carrying all this baggage, yeah, it, it, even if it was muscle mass. And you might think, yeah, 180, Lonnie, that's not big. But at 5'9", and after three hours of working out, that's that's dragging you down, you know, yeah. um, kind of yeah. thing. Uh, but I always like the strength stuff. And yeah, I think at some point, uh, Mike, to your point about tipping point, that's... It does become a problem. You have to ultimately specialize in, like Phil said, what is my goal? And yeah. they're pushing it really far these days, I admit. The, the cross-training ability is more than I would have ever guessed. I would have thought the specificity yeah. principle would not have allowed it. You know, yeah. but. No, It's definitely higher, but I mean, in the end of the day, the best are still concentrating on one thing, and they always will. I That's mean, right. It's just the way it's going to be. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in fact, I, I play around with students, and I say – why are the best in the world less fit uh, in general? And I want them to talk about the five components of physical fitness, right, and how different sports exemplify them. Yeah, and I mean – and I often tell the story about how powerlifters – and Phil, you know what this feels like. You go up a flight of stairs, you're grabbing your knees and wheezing, mm-hmm. but you're laughing about it because you don't give a damn yeah. at that point, right? Yeah, and in fact, the point. It, yeah, it, in fact, it's a badge of honor because it means you're big. <laughs> yeah. So anyway – yeah. A last quick point on that, too, is that people forget that VO2 max has a very high genetic component. We've got pretty good data on that. Um, so you, I have seen a couple of freaks that can do a lot of lifting, and their VO2 max or their aerobic capacity just doesn't really go down that much. And when we've actually tested a handful of them, their VO2 max was surprisingly high. And usually there, it's a similar history of, oh, yeah, I started in high school. I was a long-distance mm-hmm. runner, and I just didn't train much, and I destroyed everyone. And, and they just kind of you know switched gears along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, so looking a lot of times at what they're doing for training may not necessarily give you all the answers you want either. So. Yeah, until they put on 30 pounds, and then, then their it v- changes for sure. Their yeah. VO2 max oh, yeah. is going to go down because it's relative to their body weight. <laughs> Right. Yeah. 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 But it's still a lot of times I find higher than, you know, some other people who just never really trained oh. aerobically either. So, right. Totally. In fact, um, not to belabor this much more, but you guys remember Flojo, Florence Griff, the joiner. Mm-hmm. She yeah. was like fastest woman in the world, I, I think. And then she, late career, she's gone. I think she died in the late 90s, but late career, she made this like wholesale switch to endurance, if I'm thinking it right, that it was her. And that blew me away. It just shows how, mm-hmm. you know, like you said, almost genetically superior you can yeah. do whatever you want. I don't know. Anyway, um, I want to touch on one thing, Mike. I know because I know you have to go here in a second, but I thought you might be yeah. interested in this. Um, this is from um, labroots.com. Does true brain really work? T-R-U brain. Apparently, it's this nootropic type thing that's popular with businessmen and this almost starts reading like an ad and i was a little shocked now they they do clarify later in the article because again i I rely on lab roots as a great little news catcher for actual news and i don't want i don't want ads presented to me as news right i've actually seen that kelly and i were talking about that this morning back in the day 
I know for a fact, I watched this happen, that a company bought a segment on the news, and it wasn't presented as an ad. It was presented as news, and I thought, wow, okay. So does true brain really work? It says this um, product is a mix of different substances claimed to help people increase verbal fluency, avoid distractions, and boost mental output. It was apparently created by some UCLA uh, scientists. It's sort of – they do refer to it as a concoction. They say it's popular with business people and students. Does it really work? I guess you can get it as a drink or a tablet. Um, now, then they start talking – as evidence, they say feedback for the product is mixed. An Amazon rating of 3.6 out of 5. I've never seen Amazon ratings presented as evidence for something. <laughs> but, oh, okay. Um, and then it goes on. It says um, – However, other people, despite its popularity, have reported either no difference or even side effects from anxiety to panic attacks at night. And again, pointing to Amazon as the evidence for that. But um, here's what the mechanism. This goes back to what we were saying before. If you dwell too much on mechanisms, does it? we lose track of the actual outcome. But it says uh, it purportedly increases blood flow, which they say creates new neural connections. Uh, now, as a sidebar... People have been talking about ginkgo um, for a long time with blood flow. Uh, so this kind of mechanism doesn't seem that new to me. But um, anyway, blood flow may create new neural connections. It says other nootropics uh, focus on the brain's acetylcholine receptors, uh, leading to more efficient communication. Um, but then it also talks about other, I guess, substances in this cocktail, like magnesium and tyrosine. Uh, and then they even say carnitine. Um Carnitine acting as a, quote, food source, allowing neurons to break down glucose and fatty acids for energy. Oh, boy. I, I'm not sure. There, I, I, there's some rough spots to that right there I'm not going to get into for time. But, um, yeah, I mean, magnesium, you know, there's always that. This is a long-going argument that maybe people tend to be slightly deficient, like there's a subclinical deficiency in magnesium. I actually take a little bit of uh, magnesium at night. Uh, tyrosine that we know uh, as an amino acid, single amino acids can have drug-like effects, and if you take a, a, a lot of tyrosine, it may actually help with adrenaline production and stuff like that. I've actually measured some urinary metabolites of, of that kind of stuff in the past. The stuff about food source and breaking down glucose and fatty acids, that's that's a bit of a reach for me. Um, anyway, they, the company claims to have done some EEG, right, uh, electroencephalograms, on people, but there was no placebo group. It had seven people uh, total in the study. This is the kind of stuff that we've all seen supplement companies do before. You know, they hire like a, a fly-by-night lab, or and I'm not saying there's this is necessarily uh, wrong. It's just you know there are a, a couple of issues here with it. Um, it does say the company cites studies highlighting the efficacy of individual compounds in True Brain. Um, these compounds, including L-theanine, uh, c- caffeine, uh, but again, we're, we're down to the individual ingredients, and I think L-theanine and caffeine probably do work when stacked together. There's multiple papers on that. Um, I'm interested in that kind of stuff myself. Um, as a disclaimer, I mean, that's a, a part uh, of what I'm interested in, actually. I have a patent related to those things because they probably work. But in any case, it says, despite this, um, True Brain probably does have some positive effect. Again, this is the article itself saying this. 
Uh, caffeine alpinine are examples known to increase feelings of alertness, focus, and positive mood, something that may uh, inevitably enable people to concentrate better. And again, they go on about how people might have a magnesium deficiency. Um, Mike, I know you're also interested in product development potentially down the road with different things like this, and you just like nootropic uh, research. Um, any thoughts about this sort of thing? Have you heard about True Brain? Yeah. I guess it's really popular. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I tried it when it first came out. Um, they went through a couple of iterations kind of early on, and the little packets they had, the the last version I saw was pretty good. Uh, convenient wise was good. Taste was pretty good. Um, one of the main researchers behind it is uh, Dr. Andrew Hill, who runs the Peak Brain Institute in Southern California, I believe. So they do a lot of uh, neurofeedback. Right, so that's probably where they got the EEG data from. Uh, in terms of ingredients, I mean, some of them are pretty solid, right? So L-theanine, caffeine you talked about. Uh, there's some other which are not really considered classic racetems, but kind of in that area. Uh, uridine, centrophophine, uh, Nupept, and then other ones that we know probably have pretty good effects. Tyrosine, especially if you can get a high enough dose. Um, N-acetylcarnitine has some pretty good brain data, although I don't agree with the little expert they had that seems kind of that seems like someone plucked l-carnitine proposed mechanisms and stuck it in there so yeah. i'm not sure where that came from uh-huh. but uh citicoline right which is uh cdp choline has some actually pretty good data on that the main researcher on that's uh, dr renshaw uh, he's presented a fair amount of that actually him and his wife um so just some you know okay data on it i tried it and uh, if you talk to Andrew Hill about it. They wanted stuff that was more mild, not really any crazy stuff the FDA may potentially ban, but they wanted something that would kind of help for more of a daily use. Um, he said he purposely didn't put a lot of caffeine in there because that can have uh, downsides with sleep and other effects there also. Yeah. Um, and when I tried it, I, you know, focus, things like that seemed to be a little bit better. I didn't notice any super crazy effects from it but you know i don't think you would expect that from the ingredient profile either yeah um the other part too is that on a lot of nootropics if you have sleep or not have sleep makes a big difference so i've used some other ones from like neurohacker collective and things of that nature qualia and creative writing things like that i've noticed are better but if I don't have a lot of sleep, then, yeah, the only thing that really seems to help is stuff in more of this, the stimulant realm. So I think if people are looking for a nootropic to make up for their two hours of missed sleep, probably not going to happen. You just stick with coffee and get some sleep. Um, if you're looking for other effects, yeah, I think some of them can help. Um, I've noticed, that even just from talking to people that do formulations, there's a lot of variability from one person to the next. Right. So you start getting into brain specific things. I mean, even people who do neurofeedback will tell you that, you know, how one brain works versus the next. You can see pretty big differences there. So compounds that affect it, you know, you're probably going to see a pretty wide uh, variation there also. Now, they do say and you you mentioned this. Um, it's a uh, oxiracetam. Is that how you pronounce that? Um, yeah, they have a couple of ones that do have some uh, what they're called racetams in them. It's just uh it's kind of a classic, um, so the first standard sort of nootropic is uh, paracetam, right, which yes. was developed many, many years ago. Yep. 
they've always been kind of existed at the FDA as kind of this gray area. And so everyone's been trying to modify the kind of molecule and call it, oh, it's a racetam. But then people get crazy and do like a phenyl racetam, which really is more of a, a stimulant, not really a racetam because of the phenyl modification. Um, but so far, the FDA has considered those in most countries, at least in the U.S., that they're still legal. But every once in a while, they get kind of crazy and they're like, oh, these aren't found in the, you know, foods and things of that nature, which I'm pretty sure when they developed it, they wanted to make sure they had good supporting data on that. That's probably also why the ad copy, it'll say food sources, because if you can show that it's in, you know, the food chain, the shea, all that kind of stuff, it's probably not going to see the wrath of the FDA. <laughs> yeah, I actually wondered, I first heard of uh, paracetam, uh, paracetam ages ago. Oh, man, there were oh, some yeah, guys at UCLA that were time. interested. I thought it was a drug. Uh, but apparently it's it sold drug. as a supplement, yeah. and I'm I'm just playing catch-up with this. I mean, I remember it's something about um, helping acetylcholine receptors work better or something. I don't know. Um, yeah. It's supposed to help neuronal fluidity, but even now, like the stuff I've read, I don't know if anyone understands the exact mechanism right. of how it works. Yeah. Um, and I don't believe a lot of the ad copy that says how it works <laughs> either. Um, but yeah, it, it, I bought some of it, God, probably in the early two thousands. Um, and I put it in some green tea and man, if you get actual paracetam, it tastes bad. Oh. It has this burnt tire aftertaste to it. I was like, Oh God. <laughs> if, if it's true that it somehow helps acetylcholine receptors or uh, something about like, um, electron transport and you know energy production something like that i my frankenstein brain starts thinking oh well wouldn't that help with the you know literally like the end terminal like the neuromuscular uh connection and not just cns i don't know if that's true but it'd be it'd be fun to play with you know give phil some and see see what happens yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah, i've looked for data on that Mm -hmm. and just rest of times in general i haven't seen much in the performance area i haven't anecdotally heard much about it i haven't noticed anything myself per se uh choline donors you can a little bit uh like alpha gpc there's a couple studies on that uh acetylcholine there's some studies on that too Uh, last part too if you're using higher ish doses of racetams you probably want to take more choline with it because it can deplete out choline levels also Mm -hmm. so alpha gpc acetylcholine or you know more egg yolks things of that nature can help now that's interesting because I was I was very nonplussed by a lot of the alpha GPC stuff when it first came out. They were looking yeah, at growth hormone release okay. and stuff, but I was yeah, I don't think it does shit for meh. growth hormone. <laughs> yeah. I'm not so convinced by that part. Right. Okay. Uh, but some speed and power stuff. There's a couple studies that are pretty good. Um, it's still a very expensive raw material. Uh, Kemi Nutra has some other studies that are supposed to be coming out on it. Um, but stuff like that that's been on the market for quite a while, I would love to see other labs and more data of just, hey, yay or nay, and I just haven't seen a lot of data, period, on it. All right. Well, uh, I think we're pretty much out of time. I'm going to table this last bit. I have a couple of things. Apparently, the whole genetically modified food thing is blowing up. I don't know if anybody's heard about this, but I wanted to share a little bit about that. Um GMO foods and whatnot. Uh, well, we could table that till till next week. So, there's some uh, mail and news for everybody. Uh, Mike, I know you got to go give a talk on probably um, neurologically related stuff. Isn't a pain or something? <laughs> and Phil's got to get going. So, all right, folks. Hi, everybody. Thanks a lot. 
Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good. Uh, knee sleeves. Wraps of some kind. Things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org. And um, let us know what you think on the forums. And certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.